Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me as always is Steve. How are you doing? Fired up. How are you? Good. Uh, at least I don't work for Twitter, where things have been kind of bouncing back and forth. I, th- I think a, a few people left uh, because of the Elon Musk uh, acquisition and some of the new things going on. But then it ends up that he wants to rid himself of the deal anyways. He says that, quote unquote, the deal is off, um, which, by the way, has no contractual meaning other than what he's putting on Twitter. I mean, he signed a deal. He waived his right to due diligence. Nothing oh, he can do oh, would he allow him to back out. Yeah, it's he waived the he, due diligence. He he didn't waive it, but when you, when you sign a purchase a purchase agreement, you basically um, uh, it's understood that that include that means that you've done your due, your due diligence, um, which he obviously did not do. Uh-huh. Um, and now he claims uh-huh. so there's a, a lot problem, which impulsive there. Uh, a little bit impulsive, a little bit like Elon. Um, uh, you know that this whole bot issue as well. It only affects people with a lot of followers, so it basically affects him and his friends. Um, I, I use Twitter very irregularly, and I, I've never interacted with a bot. I think, although but I also you know, I, I'm right. not, I, that I know. Yeah, I'm also not not tweeting consistently, but um, yeah, I think it, this will will result in either a gigantic breakup fee from his part or Twitter lowering the price. But um, uh, you know, we live in a society, and there are rules and there are laws, and you sign the dotted line, dude. You gotta either do it or or pay the the breakup fee. A deal is a deal, huh? A deal is a deal. Yeah, you know, I kind of miss hungry Elon when he worked really hard. He didn't like talk smack all the time, just focused on building these uh, companies, taking big risks in, in doing it, but uh, actually focused on on building. And I, I'm not sure I'm crazy about um, richest man in the world going to his head, Elon. It's a very I don't different think Musk. No, no, I don't think anyone likes uh, public troll and pompous ass Elon. <laughs> They're like, you know, building cool stuff, Elon. I like when he had to borrow money from his friends, Elon. He seemed, you know, yes. really, really laser focused <laughs> on his, his companies uh, and uh, yeah. um, not so much on everything else. Yep. Well, a laser focus is what it takes these days. And here to talk uh, with us a bit about uh, laser focus on data science and the banking industry is Paul Fahey, the head of investment data science at Northern Trust. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, John. So as head of investment data science at at a very large bank, uh, does that mean you can do more or are there more uh, restrictions and regulations that you have to jump through? Uh, compared to like a smaller fintech? Well, I think um, as a bank, we are certainly regulated, but I think our approach to data science and how we've gone about supporting our clients is we've partnered with fintech. So uh, we've been able to be agile in the fintech sense, but doing it and bringing to those fintechs a certain level of control and resources that allows them not just to be flexible and agile as they were raised and, and as they lived their lives, but also to uh, embed a certain level of control that then gives them access to our client base who are very comfortable with the agility of the fintech backed by the control and, and risk appetite of a, uh, of a large bank. How, how is the model for the way you guys interact with uh, the fintechs that you're, that you're interested in? For, I guess you're evaluating first to see if they have some kind of strategic fit or product fit. And then, and then what happens? Yeah, I think if I, I would take a, maybe a little bit of a different tack, we look at what our clients are trying to do and how we fill 
gaps maybe in our product set to support our clients. You know, we, we don't look at our client bases as selling anything to them. We look at what the problems they have and what, how we can help solve them. And oftentimes that results in capabilities that we don't necessarily have as of today. And then we'll go about a process of, uh, of evaluating whether we build buy or partner. And where the answer is buy or partner, um, we will certainly look at what's available in the marketplace. And that oftentimes results in us striking up a partnership um, either by way of equity investment or a strategic alliance with fintechs. So you're our, meeting with a, a lot of uh, fintech companies then? Uh, we are. Plus, we, we lean on our, we have a, um, a private equity arm of our investment management who's plugged into uh, the various centers of, uh, of fintech that we, we certainly leverage there. Plus, we're also talking to our clients about their needs and gaps and anyone that they've spoken to as a potential, you know, as you can imagine, as our clients look at capabilities, they're coming across various firms. Uh, sometimes they will provide an introduction. Sometimes we'll, we'll go where the fintechs go. So whether it's at a, a conference that brings a number of fintechs together, um, we deal with consultants who will hold um, product or fintech days where they'll bring in a number of fintechs and who will show off their wares uh, and we'll go and pay attention, ask questions, dig deep and see if there's any alignment with what they're doing versus the, uh, the product gaps we're trying to fill. Okay. So they've, they've gone through some vetting uh, at the point you're talking to them, but any interesting, uh, I, you know, I love a good story, a good anecdote, uh, anything interesting that's uh, come up when you've met uh, fintech where you thought, what are they thinking? Or that's not going to, that's just a, a deal killer from the very beginning. I'm not sure I, I would necessarily have that anecdote. I, I guess what is interesting as we talk to fintechs, particularly those that are, you know, two, two guys in a, a garage, if you like, is that they're not necessarily familiar with us as a large financial institution that's heavily regulated. So oftentimes the conversation is how do we allow them to do what they're very good at? allow them to continue to be agile, but work within our infrastructure, our ecosystem. So clearly the worst thing that happens is we find a, um, an individual or a group of individuals that have a capability that we think is a good fit. And we then overpower them with red tape and, and bureaucracy to the extent where they can't continue to do the thing that we are interested in them doing. So. That certainly is a, is a challenge, and it's not a you know our way or the highway. It tends to be a case of working with the the fintech to understand okay how do we bring them into our ecosystem, allow them to continue to do what they're doing, but allow us to function as a as a regulated entity. Um, and there's some give and take there. Um, I don't know that we necessarily would give up a lot of their capabilities because that again would defeat the purpose of engaging with them. But there is some work that needs to happen to educate them on why we're asking them to do certain things. And then oftentimes internally here, I'm educating our teams around how we need to allow them to continue down the path that, uh, that they're going down. There, there's some inherent uh, friction and tension, basically, when you have, as you say, two guys in a garage working on a fintech product, and then you have a more established, as you say, well-regulated bank. Um, which can result in some cases in sort of a different a different approach to speed 
and how quickly you can get to market and build things out. So how do you address those issues that it, you know, they will, in my experience, will inevitably prop up in terms of having a fast-moving, nimble fintech ready to you know to kick ass and take names and then move, a bit move fast more, and break things move fast <laughs> right? and break things which is not well, what you want to do which is not what you want to do right and and then you have a more um more uh somber somber a bit more uh cautious well-regulated bank like yours how, how do you actually approach uh, a partnership framework that makes sense for both parties so that you know they're not bored and you're not frustrated with their carelessness yeah i i'm not sure that i'm completely averse to breaking things i, I think some of our approach needs to be uh, in a position to break things. You just need somebody coming behind with a dustpan sweeping up the uh, the broken glass. But there is there is a balance that needs to be struck. I mean, clearly, as a as a regulated entity, I don't want to spend too much time talking about us as a regulated entity. But there are um, requirements that we need to meet, and we've yet to come across a fintech that we've partnered with, where or, or begun to partner with, where we've had to walk away because we just have not made that fit. And I think that in part is because we do a, a fair amount of due diligence up front and we'll walk away early if we think it's not going to be a good fit. If you have a, a founder that is adamant about doing something a certain way and you recognize early that, well, that's not going to fit with us as a, um, as a large entity, whether the regulated side or just us, us as a bank. Um, but clearly, if we do the work up front, and these are long-term relationships, you know, marriages, if you like. So we have to make sure that the courting period fleshes all of that out. and We don't end up in a marriage that is not going to work. And ultimately, we're looking at how does this benefit our clients? So um, Elon Musk should have talked to you first. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure uh, Elon uh, has me on his speed dial. But if he does <laughs> want to ask any questions, I'll certainly make myself available. He is an interesting character. Yeah, and just to give a little background on Northern Trust, you guys are, uh, uh, you manage uh, over a trillion, one and a half trillion dollars in assets focused on uh, wealth management, uh, custodial services, asset management. Uh, and so you're focused on on those areas or a little bit wider than than your existing businesses? Yeah, so for, for me, you know, our, I'm on the asset servicing side, so the trillion plus in assets that you reference is managed by our Northern Trust Asset Management Group. I work on the asset servicer who we have large asset managers, uh, asset owners, asset allocators as our clients. So we provide support and services to those. And you know, our history is really around the operations side and providing those clients with scalable, rentable operating models so they're not making large-scale investments on their side but they can leverage our capabilities where i'm focused is a we're moving more into the front office of those clients both the asset managers and the asset allocators and really helping them generate more alpha protect the alpha that they they have created how do we help them be better at what they do a lot of these asset managers have a, a process their secret sauce if you like how do we help them scale that and make it repeatable? And that's where I'm spending the bulk of my time today. And that's using a lot of the data science and, uh, and technology that's uh, available. That's a really good segue into my question, which is uh, you're the head of investment data science. What do you actually do, Paul? So our approach to this, at least for the moment, has been to partner with a couple of fintechs, uh, two of which are one, equity data science, or EDS and uh, Essential Analytics, 
are, are the two today that are driving a lot of what we're doing. Equity data science is, is very much focused on the investment process. So, you know, the cockpit that is the portfolio manager today around portfolio construction, research management, risk management, uh, idea generation. How do we digitize that entire process? And again, allow those managers to um, analyze the process they have, identify their good ideas, make those good ideas both repeatable and, uh, and scalable. What's an example of a, of a good practice that you want to repeat and, and scale up? So the, their stock picking or their voting on particular names. So if you've got a, mm. a team of research analysts supporting a portfolio manager today and they're voting on uh, investment ideas, how do you capture that process and identify, let's say as an example, you've got four research analysts and one of them You've been able to capture all of the voting across the four and you identify one is particularly good when it comes to Southeast Asian technology firms. So he is right 85% of the time if he says buy or don't buy. Then you start to capture that data. And when you're looking at a Southeast Asian technology firm, you start to give his vote a little bit more weight than maybe the other three individuals who collectively are right 35% of without being able to capture that data and, and over time recognize those uh, insights, you leave that on the table. And I, I would suggest that a lot of the data that goes into the investment process today is available to everybody, whether it's market data, reference data, social media data. If you're willing to go and get that, you can generally go into the marketplace pay somebody to deliver that data to you. The unique data set, and by unique, I mean unique to you as an asset manager, is your own data. The things that you do with all of that data you get, the decisions you make, that is unique to you. And I would suggest it's probably the most underutilized data set today. Managers are not looking at it. And the irony of it is that's the one that likely gives you the best advantage because it's not available to anybody else. Well, I, I mean, that's one. You, so, Steve, you asked the question about what we're doing. The other firm that we've partnered with is a firm called Essential Analytics, and that is a behavioral uh, analytics firm. They look at the behavior of the asset managers and identify those behaviors that either cre create or sometimes destroy alpha. So whether that's things like uh, loss aversion, the halo effect, where they're in positions for longer, you know, they fall in love with a stock and and find it very difficult to exit it, even though it's on a, a downward slide. Um, so the answer to your question around what are we doing is right now we've used a couple of firms to focus on those capabilities and we're bringing those to market with our investment managers to help them, again, be better at what they do. Not necessarily replace their process, but just give them better access to the data as part of that process. So on the parlature side, what's sort of your decision matrix so that you understand so that it would help you assess whether you want to actually take an equity um, uh, uh, piece in a company that you, you work with or outright acquire the company? What does that come down to? Um, I, I don't think it's as, as binary as that. Sometimes it's a case of we may not make a full acquisition day one, but we will make take an equity stake um, day one, and then look to build that out and potentially fully acquire a firm in, uh, in due course. And we've, we've certainly done that in the past. Um, 
I won't say it's a cautious thing. It really is just trying to understand, do we need to do something today? Um, we've got, we deal with founders that certainly aren't always interested in a full acquisition. They are still fully invested in what they're doing. And sometimes part of what we'd like to do is make sure they stick around and, and remain fully invested in, in what they're uh, trying to bring to market. Um, but it, it really doesn't come down to necessarily binary decision around we'll fully acquire today versus uh, take a piecemeal stake. So Northern Trust just uh, started its digital assets and financial markets group. Uh, and, you know, the world is always changing. We have these new crypto and digital assets. Uh, what do you see as the main driver of that for Northern Trust? Has it been a lot of uh, institutional demand that, that you're seeing or asset managers? Uh, y- yes, certainly both of those. And I, I think we could all agree that whatever your view on crypto is, it's certainly not going away. So um, we think we're going to continue to see that demand. But I like a lot of things. And a number of years ago, we created a, uh, uh, a solution built off digital, um, sorry, distributed ledger technology that and we brought it to market around private equity. Um, so we, we tend uh, not uh, a to A solution be, for the investments? The trading of, of private, yeah, private equity investments, so really trying to digitize what it was very much a paper-driven, you know, box of paper uh, solution. So being able to put that on the blockchain. Oh, an enterprise product. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, partnering with a number of firms and then the regulator in, uh, in Guernsey to, uh, to deliver a solution. We're also trying to predict where that's going and not just being reactive to, uh, to the market. Um, so we, again, we see crypto sticking around, not going anywhere. What is it going to mean for our clients? Uh, continues to evolve, but we have a, a separate group now that is uh, singularly focused on that um, as it relates to us as a, an asset, provi- asset servicer. So are you holding any crypto assets? Uh, I am not currently. Um, oh, okay. I will say I did for, um, uh, I'll say pure research purposes. Um, it's part of what we do as an organization. So that, that's uh, what I, the same thing I did with uh, cannabis for research purposes. <laughs> I'll take your word for that, John. <laughs> um, but you, you but, took any gains um, as part of this research? I, I did, and it was it, it was for no other. It was a relatively small amount. Uh, I'm happy to share. It was a thousand dollars, and it was all That's about setting up and trading, and going through the process of seeing how it all works as an individual investor. And it was at the suggestion of a, uh, a presenter, um, whose name escapes me right now. Um, I was at a, uh, the iConnections conference back in January, and that was his suggestion. He said, just go through it, experience what it's like. If you're playing in this space, if you're supporting clients in this space, you should probably have a practical understanding of how this all works. And uh, nothing's going to focus your mind better than if some of your money's on the line. It's your own money's on the line, correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it. It also seems like an area that because it's so lightly regulated, or because the the framework is so um, ill defined, it seems like it's 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 not a space where banks like yours would be happy to jump into, right? Well, I, again, I a lot of what we do will be driven by where our customers go, and you know, as our clients, and we have plenty of clients that are looking at this and hence the, the setup of the separate unit, and we had a, a relationship with uh, Standard Chartered. Zodia, 
um, around crypto. It, it will continue. So we, uh, we really have to be where our clients are if we're going to uh, uh, support them. So on the investment side, we've seen how there's a lot of uh, a lot of new entrants into the space in terms of people that they can offer, you know, hybrid investment advice. They can be robo advisors. They can provide the actual humans as well. So basically, all flavors of this. Um, how how do you think of the evolving competitive landscape, and how will you as a company um, make sure that you can remain relevant to your customers? Yeah. So I, uh, what's interesting is if you look at you know going back maybe as I'll say as recently as 20 years ago, the asset manager community carried a fairly big stick. They were um, price makers, if you like. They, there were fewer than them. People looking to spend capital had to deal with managers who carried a little bit more of the power. We've seen that shift now. I, I think uh, at the last count, there were more funds out there than there were actual stocks available to buy. So. We're seeing a little bit of a shift back to the asset owner or the investor um, in that, yeah. th that relationship. And by that now, if you add in the access to data, those investors have a lot more information. They're making, they're holding managers a lot more accountable. So I think anyone entering into this space needs to be one aware of that and to be able to respond to uh, a more a high, higher level of interrogation from investors. Where we see our role here is between both the investor and the, the manager is giving them access to that data, allowing them to understand how managers are, the, the investors, how managers are delivering value, the managers being able to demonstrate how they're delivering that value. And I think those that can do that and do that well will ultimately be the ones that win. Uh, so uh, on the data science and, well, the technology in general, what, what do you see as interesting in the next, uh, let's say, five years or, or so that you, you would expect to see? Um, so I'm interested in the, the relationship we have now with Essential Analytics and what they're doing in, with behavioral. I think that has only started to scratch the surface with managers. I think there are probably a small number that are, are using it today but it's not widely understood. And in a, an environment where you're always trying to get better, being able to look at how you do what you do and get real insights into- Oh, behavior. individual behavior. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. Portfolio at the portfolio manager level. What has your trading history done to create that value? Or as I said earlier, oftentimes destroy value. And how do you- do more of the stuff that creates value and stop doing the- those Or unconscious that. habits or biases. Yeah, biases. Um, so there's a lot of uh, behavioral um, analysis, looking at the trading history of managers and identifying where they've done well, where they've uh, tripped up and, and coaching. So the, a big piece of the, what Accenture brings is uh, coaching of uh, portfolio managers. And if you think back to, you know, we use the example of Moneyball, although on the heels of Wimbledon last week, I was fascinated to see the amount of data that was presented as you watched a, a tennis match. You know, I'm, really? uh, well, I'm of the vintage now. When, when I grew up, you saw two pieces of data, score and who was serving. And that's what was on TV. <laughs> now it's numbers of first serves in, percentage of second serves, forehand winners, backhand winners, cross court. 
and you're just bombarded with all of this data. And while I was watching, uh, it was an early round game, IBM is responsible for the data uh, management at Wimbledon, and they ran a, a commercial showing all of the data points that they're capturing during a match. And they had a visual of these uh, stream of tennis balls hitting different parts of the court and capturing the data. And, you know, we've seen it going back 20 plus years now with Moneyball in, in baseball, and capturing all of this data on players and identifying what is it that makes a player successful. And then you couple that with the best athletes in the world don't go it alone. They're capturing all of this data, they're using this data, and they're working with coaches to make decisions and changes and improvements based on that data. And I would make the case if we're going to do it for games and sports, don't we have a moral obligation to do the same level of investment analysis for the retirement asset of millions of people around the globe? And, and and selling it, saying, "Hey, you're like a top athlete." Yes, <laughs> we're just giving you the same support that they get. Yep. And, and one of the things that I think is helping in those discussions is we'll have a small number of maybe seasoned portfolio managers that get it, and always are trying to improve. And if you give them any kind of data or insights that's going to help them generate more alpha, they'll they'll sign up. But there's also a, a demographic shift as portfolio managers are getting younger. Not only do you have portfolio managers that are comfortable with this kind of technology and this kind of analytics, they are demanding of it. You know, they've grown up their whole life with the iPhone. Not only are they comfortable with the technology, they can't see a world where they're not using that technology. So if you're giving them the skills of a portfolio manager supplemented with real data, real insights, uh, and real technology, that can only make them better. You know, we talk about AI and, you know, obviously it means artificial intelligence or has stood for artificial intelligence. I prefer the uh, AI augmented intelligence where you've got the human and the machine working in tandem. Uh, and I think ultimately that's going to deliver a better result for the, uh, the underlying stakeholders. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the, the strengths of each will be, will be unbeatable. Yeah. How, how, how did you actually end up in, in this baseball? How did you become the head of data science or the, the head of, yeah, the head of data science investment? So I, I probably didn't come the traditional data scientist route. Um, I come from the business. So really my job is I understand where, where our clients are coming from, what they're trying to do. And, Despite the amount of talking I've done on this podcast, I approach our clients with the uh, two ears, one mouth approach and, and try and listen as much, uh, twice as much as I talk and, and really probe them for where they're going. But then partnering with people that understand the technology and the data aspect of that. And really my job is around putting those two together. What are the challenges our clients are facing today and into the future? And what solutions do we need to bring to them? And how do we uh, find the right capabilities to, uh, to solve for that? Yeah, great. Well, we know you have plenty of experience when you say as recently as 20 years ago. <laughs> I'm sure our Gen Z listeners are like, you mean when I was born? Um, yeah. But, uh, what, what, uh, what advice would you give to uh, fintechs out there, you know, based on, on what you've seen? I would say be patient with people that have been doing this for 25 years and they're not trying to uh, slow you down. Um, you, but you, you're still a person, even if you don't make TikTok videos. 
Um, yeah, I'm, uh, as, as my 15 year old son would say, when he sees me looking on Instagram, he goes, dad, you know, Instagram is just TikTok for old people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, as recently as 30 years ago, yeah, there was no internet. He's 15. So, um, yeah, he's got a combination of being young and being a teenager, which I know that sounds like it's the same thing, but I think teenagers have a, a certain edge to them. Um, but I, I would say be patient with those individuals that have, let's call it experience on the business side. But I would give, give similar advice to people that are sitting in my seat is don't be so restrictive of the fintechs and some of those, you know, if they are 20 somethings or Gen Z uh, and their view of the world. I think everybody, um, I'm a big fan of mentoring. I think I mean, I've heard the expression reverse mentoring, which I think is just obnoxious. I think every mm-hmm. um, you know, person in their late 40s, 50s, and their 60s should spend time with mentors that are in their 20s. Their, view, their perspective is different. Um, and while on the face of it, they will ask questions. And as I said, someone, I'll speak only for myself, someone of my generation will be flabbergasted by the, the question. When you dig into it, there is a, um, a thought process that gets to that question. And the more we understand that, the, the better it will be for everybody. Yeah, some great advice. Uh, there's certainly a lot of perspectives, a lot to learn from uh, every day, I think. Um, time to finally put away my slide rule, maybe. Uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much, John, Steve. Yeah, thank you. That's Paul Fahey, the head of investment data science at Northern Trust. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.